Hey everybody, this is J.D. Simo, and you're listening to Concerts That Made Us. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. That made us interviews and stories, tales from the bus. We love taking you back to when it all went down. The greatest live shows and that cheering crowd sound. It's concerts, concerts that made us, concerts that made us.com. On this episode, I'm joined by JD Simo. We have a fantastic chat about his latest album, Songs from the House of Greece, his involvement with the Elvis movie, concert experiences, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this episode, and I know you're going to love it too. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show.
J.D. Simo, you're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm uh, I'm very excited to get chatting to you now. Um, we opened the show with your track Mortgage on My Soul. It's off your album Songs from the House of Greece, which you released on 13th of January. Can you tell us a bit about the track? Sure. It's um, the, the words, at least, are, are uh, an old Mississippi Fred McDowell song and i always really dug the words and um gentleman i've been lucky to work with for a long time uh adam abershoff who uh is a magnificent world-class drummer um he uh he really is a a a huge fan of tony allen and uh fella kute and uh oftentimes we'll play these these beats that are just disgustingly great and uh so he was playing that he played that and uh just sort of superimposed the fred mcdowell tune over the top of it and um it's just really something that i enjoy playing it's i don't really get sick of it it's uh (laughs) it's it's um we usually open the shows with it and um and yeah it's 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 definitely one of my favorite things so you can really hear that come across on the track as soon as uh i thought to myself anyway god i'd love to hear him play it live because i'd say he has one hell of a time with it you know oh absolutely yeah thank you the album contains covers of songs by john coltrane blind alfred reed mississippi fred mcdowell and a free jazz take on your own track higher plane how did you come up with the concept for the album and what made you decide on them songs well, there was no concept. Uh, I I, uh, I wasn't even planning on making a record. Um, there's, I, I I my my life is sort of split between um, going out in little bursts and doing shows of my own, and then coming back here to Nashville and playing and working on other people's records and films and such. And and so there was a break in between two little bursts of touring last year and there was like mortgage was mortgage on my soul was one of the songs and the 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 different take on higher plane were two things in particular that i just wanted to record because i was really enjoying playing them and um so i just asked that adam who i already mentioned and todd bolden was uh 
a really good friend of mine uh, who uh, plays at Raylan Baxter and Elizabeth Cook, a bunch of other really talented people. He, you know, I, I asked them when we were home in this little spurt if they would mind coming over here to my studio and uh, just to cut those and maybe some other stuff just very casually. And and so we just got together and had lunch and we we cut those. And then the other tracks were just, well, we're here. What do you want to do now? Oh, let's do that. You know, and it was uh, incredibly uh, non, uh, you know, it was very loose. You know, it was just kind of hanging out. I did, there wasn't really a concept. And, and so, and I didn't know if I was going to use the stuff or maybe use one or two of them or something. But I played, I, you know, after the fact, I sent it to my team of people that I work with and, and they all, seem to agree that it should as a collection of songs be my next record and uh i you know i I saw it through their eyes i was like well yeah i guess that would be cool you know and um and that that's it you know it was just amusing myself uh having fun um playing with with uh, uh guys that we'd played a lot together and and uh as a as a consequence of it like records whether it's my records or records i'm working on for other people you know sometimes the quote-unquote concept can be a debilitating factor um Mm. to to uh to the task at hand and i certainly uh, uh at least with the records that i'm connected to um that that are mine you know i think that in this case it's actually kind of refreshing because it's it's for all intents and purposes it's more of a of a jazz album, essentially an approach just because it's about the performances, you know, the, the performances are very uh, loose and open and there's really no production to speak of. It's just, you know, there's, there's ambient miking and, and it's just us playing the collection of material, you know, and that's something that I've hinted at and done at different points, but, you know, to totally commit to that as, what is that's what this record is you know i think is is probably uh fortuitous at least of showcasing my uh my prowess on my instrument i suppose um and i'm very happy with it so anyway sorry for the long-winded answer (laughs) no no it's good it's good and um you know doing a record where you kind of capture the essence of jazz i suppose does it kind of give you an itch to continue to make records in such a way Oh, sure. It's even influencing sort of how I'm going to be touring for this next year. Um, because it's sort of, um, for all intents and purposes, I've, I've always kind of played, you know, like rock rooms or, you know, something if, 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 if you will. And, uh, now I'm actually getting offers, um, to play like listening rooms and, um, and in some cases, like the Iridium in New York City, or there's a there's a couple others, you know, actual jazz rooms. And so, not that I'm necessarily a jazz player, but it's kind of got me um, rethinking uh, a lot of uh, sort of the ethos of what I do. Of that, you know, there, there's there's uh, there's a lot of musical genres that I work in, um, whether it's whether it's you know Americana music or or um, or, you know, certainly blues and psychedelic music and folk music and country music and bluegrass and, um, 
and to and a little bit you know in the jazz world and and um americana world and so on and so forth and so you know trying to actually kind of commit to a two set format live you know of where i'm just going to do a little bit of all of it you know um so yeah it's definitely not only influencing you know future projects recording wise but even live you know and what was the reaction like when the record dropped it's been out just about coming up on the month mark there must have been a, a fairly good reaction I, i've been very um surprised actually because i uh, certainly i mean i've done this I've, I've done more interviews than i've ever done which is which is interesting and and also like streaming numbers are way way above what they've ever been uh for me and um uh and also um the uh uh the sort of like i i just went and did a, a taping at Sirius XM radio studios in in Washington DC here and you know I taped stuff for the blues channel the jazz channel um the americana channel <laughs> the elvis channel like you know the grateful dead channel like i it was it's 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 been wonderful um and uh, uh fairly un, uh, unexpected you know um so i'm just grateful you know it's 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 been the easiest project i've ever been involved in <laughs> <laughs> Great, great. Now, let's jump back to the summer of 2018. You were coming home from tour. You got a call, which I'm sure is, it'd be like the equivalent of winning the lotto for musicians. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about it? Sure. I, I, we were, I was in, uh, yeah, we were coming home and I was going to be home for a week or, or so. And I got from, from Dave Cobb, um, who at the time was a friend, but we'd never worked together. Now we've worked together a lot. Um, Dave, uh, yeah, he just called me and he's, and so that was not that odd to get a call from a friend. And he was like, Hey man, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm working on this Elvis movie. Um, uh, you know, are you available such and such, you know, to come and play some guitar? And, and luckily I was, uh, which was great. And, uh, he said, uh, he didn't really speak much more about the whole schematics of it, but he, he said, you know, obviously I'm going to need you to, to, to be able to do Scotty Moore and James Burton and some of the, you know, the 60 stuff like Tommy Tedesco and the wrecking crew did and, and Reggie Young did, you know, in the Memphis sessions and stuff. But he's like, but there's all this other stuff that we're going to do because there's a lot of period music. He, that's what he's and he said he's like i know it's right up your alley he's like there's <laughs> there's 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 like you know 50s country music there's scenes with sister was thorpe um there's scenes with bb king there's scenes with and he's and, and he's like we need to cover all of that as well as like all the incidental music that'll be like of the period and i said yeah that sounds great and um so yeah we started work and um you know it 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 I didn't know who Baz Luhrmann was, which was a kind of a blessing. It was, which was kind of a blessing uh, because I walked in uh, not kind of realizing the magnitude of what I was stepping into. And um, 
it was a wonderful experience. You know, we, we worked for over two years on, on, on the film and, um, we recorded just tons and tons and tons of music, you know, everything that's in the film is one thing, but there's a lot that we did that isn't in the film. So, I mean, it was a long project and it was really interesting and, and I'm incredibly grateful to, you know, been part of a, a relatively small team because, you know, it was me and three other gentlemen that basically did everything. And then there was, it was augmented at different times. There's, there's, you know, maybe another dozen or so musicians that were, that were in and out. Um, but the, the core team was just myself and three other fellows and, and Dave. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah. I could imagine. Jeez. And you were obviously, you know, well aware and familiar of the likes of Scotty Moore. James Burton and the the other guitarists, but how did you go about preparing and you know kind of emulating their sound? Uh well, I mean, we would get um, before each block of sessions, we would usually work in like three or four day blocks where, and it would be booked months ahead of time, and usually before those blocks, we would get like we would get notes from Baz of like what was to be accomplished um in that block of sessions and so you could kind of you know he knew what he wanted and in most cases knew specifically what songs he wanted and so you could do your homework and then we spent a lot of time sort of crafting and it wasn't just me it was the entire recording process um regardless of what we were doing every element of it was going to be authentic down to the the microphones we were using to the to in some cases the console and and tape machines and stuff that we were using uh, let alone our own personal instruments that we were using and um it was right up my alley i love you know dave is that way too dave cobb is that way too we, we love um pouring over old pictures to see how things were recorded, how things were mic'd, uh, what people were using. Um, and then the actual playing itself was just trying to, you know, get the, get the proper vibe, you know, um, you know, in particular, like the Louisiana hayride portion, we had source material. We had recordings of Elvis, and the Blue Moon Boys that I'd never heard, and I'm a lifelong Elvis fan, but it was it was actual radio broadcasts of the Louisiana Hayride. And the thing that was really interesting is it was faster than the actual records, you know, and it was more distorted and kind of um, punk rock sounding. Okay, because <laughs> um, everything's really distorted and it was faster, and the energy is more manic, you know. Um, so it was like trying to not make it sound like the record, but like make it invoke the energy of, of, of the, of that, you know, which was great fun. And, you know, every little piece of music that we did that had a source material was treated the same way, you know, like we, we certainly weren't rushing and we certainly had, you know, with the aid of Baz and his power and the, you know, the extreme, uh, privilege of riches of warner brothers you know we were able to 
really, really, really get it right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, I imagine Baz is obviously a great guy to work with. How much input were you given? You know, were you kind of given a a little bit of free roam to do what you wanted or was it very kind of stick to the script? This is what you need to accomplish. Well, I mean, everything was very specific um, because it has to be. Um, but that being said, Baz, um, it's just like any other big project I've ever worked on or any other big artist I've worked with. Um, you know, you surround yourself with incredibly competent, talented people and you let them do what they're good at. And you sort of like Baz just sort of drove this monumentally huge ship, you know, but like everybody had their things that they had to do. And, you know, I can only speak for myself that it's like, I would, if anything, over prepare, uh, with minutia, which Baz and Elliot, his second command, especially Elliot, because Elliot was very hands-on with, with, with us and Dave in particular, like Baz was there a lot and Baz would certainly interject and certainly, direct things uh sometimes more than than others but elliot was really kind of uh in the nuts and bolts with us in the trench and elliot loved it he was just like man as much detail as you can bring um to every facet of this please like don't even you don't don't hesitate like whatever you want to do to try and there were times where that was necessary like i remember um when we were working on the bb king stuff and now the stuff that's in the film is like we did much more stuff than is in the film and there's actually other artists that we recorded stuff to that didn't make it in the film even but it was like i remember with bb king i was very uh vocal about like well listen you know like the world has this image of bb king hmm but it's a later version of bb king you know this is we're we're saying that this is taking place in 1955 1956 it needs to sound and have the production stylings of him in that era which is an era that is not as you know it's 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 8 years before live at the regal or or 13 years before live at cook county jail or something it's like we cannot assimilate and make it sound like the wrong era and so some of that was instrumentation. Some of that was uh, what I personally was like BB played different in the fifties as opposed to the early sixties even. And, and so that's where it's like the little minutia of stuff. Like, you know, that's why, you know, that's why you're there. You're there to do, you know, you're there to call that kind of stuff to attention and make sure it's addressed and done properly, you know? So that's just one example though. Yeah. Yeah. And what is it actually like working on a movie of that scale? You know, it's obviously when you're working on a, an Elvis Presley biopic, you know, it's not going to be a small movie. It's going to probably be the biggest movie of the year, you know, and I imagine it could almost consume your entire life. What was it actually like? Uh, well, I mean, for the times that we were working, it certainly consumed uh, everything. Um, but like I said, we would do it in spurts, you know, it's like we would do, uh, three or four days or maybe as much as a, I think, you know, maybe there, we would do a week maybe or five days or something. And then there'd be a couple of months 
where they would go off and do their movie stuff and then we'd reconvene and then we would do the next batch of stuff and then they would go and then of course we had covid which happened right in the middle so we had i want to say at least six months if not eight months of absolutely nothing going on because everything was shut down and production had stopped and then that that's a whole nother story of like when we started up working again it was it was um it was intense um to get that many people from that many portions of the world you know i mean we even did sessions where baz and elliot were linked up via i'm assuming probably either skype or or zoom or facetime or something but pumped into the studio where they were actually even in our headphones and stuff <laughs> um which was crazy i don't even want to know the amount of technological wizardry that went into making all of that possible yeah um makes my head hurt but um but it was it was um yeah i mean it's like when we were in there working on it it was certainly all consuming you know um and and um but it was also a lot of fun i mean it was a, it was a lot of work and there were there were certain things that were really challenging and hard um but um we really became a production team the the group of us that were working on it and you know henceforth you know after we wrapped on the movie i mean it's like we've played on like the warren treaties new record and chris isaac's new record and some of the dolly parton stuff that's coming out this year and um and many other records too you know like we've gone on to like work as a unit um on lots of projects since and it's just been a wonderful blessing to uh you know for all of us you know you mentioned you're a big fan of Elvis, a lifelong fan of Elvis. What was your first impression when it was announced Austin Butler would be playing Elvis in the movie? Well, what's funny is I was perplexed at first because we were actually, we had started work on the film before he was even cast. And there were other people that were in the, the, the only one that was connected to the film when we, started the very first sessions was tom hanks and there were other gentlemen that were in the running to play elvis and there was one other one that we actually worked with and did sessions with and he ended up not getting the role so by the time austin came in to do his first session which what's funny about it is i learned retrospective you know because i'm one tiny piece in the middle of this you know 3000 plus person production and I'm there to play guitar, you know? So, um, when I met Austin, uh, we had, there was a block of sessions book and here's this guy that now we've all already worked together a bunch of, and when I say we, me and the other musicians, Dave, the engineers, Elliot Bass and Bass's team, like we've already worked a handful of, of blocks of sessions. So we have a rapport. we are joking with each other we're happy to see each other and then austin was just sort of thrown into this environment and um that first day that i met him was the first time i found out that he had gotten the role and and it was it turns out in retrospect that was his very first time in a recording studio and that was that those first few days were actually when we cut the Louisiana Hayride uh, uh, stuff. And, you know, I was, first of all, I was, you know, uh, like I'm saying, like I was trying to, you know, get a read on him and we were all trying to get, get to know each other. And I mean, 
my take on it was, you know, he had the weight of the the world on his shoulders. Yeah. In every way at that, at that, when I met him, you know, and he was kind of drinking from a fire hose. If you, if you know what I mean, um, because I'm saying he's got the stress of the role and he's trying to establish how he's going to do it. He's trying to establish his working relationship with Baz. He's never recorded in a recording studio and he's in the middle of like, you know, 15 or more people that already are friends and are joking with each other. So yeah. he's like already kind of like a lone wolf. So like, I, you know, I mean, he was absolutely amazing and he was incredibly on it, but at the same time, like I, it wasn't lost on me, like the, the levity of everything I just mentioned, like, you know, and obviously he not only rose to the occasion, but blew the ceiling off with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, I couldn't, it took my breath away. And when I finally got to see the film in its entirety, um, I mean, I was mesmerized by his performance. I mean, I was, uh, it, it just completely knocked, knocked me out. I was like, unbelievable. You know, like he did it, you know? Yeah. I was the exact same. I, you know, I'm a bit like yourself. I'm a massive Elvis fan since I was a child and I used to, with my pocket money, collect Elvis CDs every week. I think I'm when I by the time I was 13 or 14, I almost had nearly everything he recorded. I was just obsessed. <laughs> but uh, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it didn't make me very popular now back in the 90s, you know, when grunge and I stuff. Wasn't, I was no, but I was the same way. I was absolutely the same way growing up in the 90s. And it was I mean, I liked Nirvana and Sean Temple Pilots and Red Hat Chili Peppers and stuff, but I was so obsessed with Elvis and many other things that were very weird to everyone. So I can complete, I can relate to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of, you know, I was, I feel like for Elvis fans, you kind of claim a little bit of ownership over him when it comes to something like a movie or like oh god the sure. right person stuff like that but when i actually seen the film i was afraid to see it but when i seen it i couldn't believe how good a job austin butler done and as well i was actually glad that it was so good because it's like it introduces elvis to a new younger audience and almost you could nearly go as far as saying almost restores his legacy a little bit yeah, and I mean, he, I agree completely, and I I can, you know, elaborate to a certain extent on that Baz, you know, every once in a while he would, he would interject and, 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 and give these beautiful tomes to, to all of us. He would, he would gather us to tell us about the emotional content of something we were going to work on or something. It was just beautiful. It's like, you know, he Baz in his own right is a movie star. I mean, he he has the he carries himself like a classic Hollywood movie star. It's it's and I've been around some very famous people and he has a, a charisma that is very undeniable. But he would he would regale us multiple times with basically his intention of that the sort of cartoon version of Elvis that has existed in pop culture does a great disservice to his greatness and is in no way a reflection of his contribution to world culture or um, 
or America, just not even American culture, but just America is what, what America signifies to the rest of the planet. And he says, you know, and he would, he would go on to, to say that it's like, you know, it, it is our aim here to, to showcase why he's so important. And that by the time you get to the portion of his life that has become the cartoon, you understand why it happened. You know, it's the thing that struck me when I saw the film is, you know, by the time we get to the last portion, you see that not only was in a lot of ways, he, it was impossible for Elvis to survive just this entire, the entire scope of the trip that he was on, on this planet. Um, but you know, he had nothing left, you know, it's, it's incredibly sad, you know? And I think that that narrative of, you know, sort of showing that humanity of that, he literally gave everything he had to give. Uh, and then he was gone, um, is, uh, incredibly powerful. And as an Elvis fan, I, you know, I, I really am grateful for that, you know? And I think that, and also as a very, very big Elvis fan, I understand the creative license that was taken to construct the narrative. I completely am fine with because I, because I feel like even though things are sometimes taken slightly out of order or they maybe put things in different scenarios uh, or different locations, or they jam multiple things into one scene, which is what you do in a movie. I feel that the overall narrative of, of what it portrays Elvis as is, 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 uh, is achieved by it. Like it's served, it's served by it, you know? And um, yeah, I mean, that's a gargantuan task, you know? I mean, how how are you going to make anyone happy, let alone everyone happy in a situation like that? You know, that's it. That's <laughs> it. Exactly. Right. Final Elvis question. So have you been to Graceland? I've been many times. Um, the first time was when I was six or seven, because I begged my parents to take me there. And because uh, I was just obsessed and um, I've been many times. And um, uh, the last time I was there, we were, touring and we were playing the venue across the street um that's a part of the complex and uh they took uh they took us up for a private um go which was a you know as a lifelong Elvis fan was an it was an incredible experience and um you know i i i can't say that i didn't want to run up the stairs and see us i was just going to say yeah, I think he, I, I, I think outside of being a member of the family, that's never going to be possible. Um, although I think Austin and I know Baz went up there, but I think Austin was able to go up there with. Uh, I think Austin went up there actually with Lisa. God, God rest her soul. Um, but, um, but nonetheless, yes, I love it. It's a the city of Memphis as a, as a whole is a huge. Um, spiritual home for for me um uh stacks and and willie mitchell on high records and american sound studio and 
Bill Street and Sun Studio and and Elvis and um, all of the hill country blues music that I love that is essentially just south, literally just, you know, a half hour south of Memphis in Mississippi. I mean, it's just that whole, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's, it's one of my favorite places on the planet. Yeah. I'd, I can't wait to be able to, to get over there. It's on, it's right at the top of my book list. And, uh, oh, I feel like I have this image that the minute I walk through the doors, I'll have to be dragged back out of there. Like I'll never want to leave. <laughs> yeah it's got a it's got a it's got a smell and it's got a it's got a thing you know but luckily you can linger you know i mean like you know they don't they don't mess with you really they're they're pretty awesome about letting you linger but it's an incredible place it's an incredible grounds and and um you know i'll be back uh we're actually doing two nights at the uh at lafayette's music room on this upcoming tour that I'm leaving on next week. And uh, so I'll be in Memphis for two days and I'm planning to go do a thing for Elvis radio with my friend Argo um, down there. Um, So I'm sure I'll probably, you know, for the 4 millionth time, (laughs) you know, go, go in, you know, I mean, it never gets old, you know? Yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine. Right. We'll dive into your concert experiences before we, get into your own ones that you've played as a concert goer what concerts do you think have made you that's a really good question um i think um well it's not a very famous one by any means but there was a uh in one of the uh, if not the first time one of the first times i ever played in austin texas i was 16 and i was playing um uh, a set at the Saxon pub, which is a, a venue in South Austin. And so I played my set and I didn't really go over that well because I was kind of, uh, I was young and I, I didn't, I made all of the youthful mistakes that a young musician makes. And, um, there was a gentleman that was playing after me and his name was Steven Bruton. And I'd heard of his name because he had produced a handful of records that I knew of but I didn't know any more about him. And so I sat down to just watch a song or two or whatever. And he completely, completely that one night completely changed my life. Um, to give some backstory on Steven, Steven was, um, he was from Fort Worth. He grew up in the early sixties. He grew up playing with people like Delbert McClinton and grew up with, his lifelong friend T-Bone Burnett, who would become the great producer. Um, Stephen's life was, was an incredible study in varied musical genres and the, the highest level of musicianship. He worked with Chris Christopherson and Bob Dylan and Bonnie Raitt and um, many others. The, the list is long. And, um, as a sideman, as a session musician, as a producer, and as a songwriter. Bob Dylan even covered songs that he wrote. But he was kind of an under-the-radar. He was kind of a person that, in musician circles, he was as high as you could get. But it's not like he was famous or anything. Yeah. And um, he got up and played. And one song was jazz, and one song 
was like the best slide playing I'd ever heard. And one song was like a country, traditional country. And one song was like, you know, a reinterpretation of, of an old lead belly tune. And it was just completely genre hopping. And at the highest level that I'd ever seen in my life. Um, and compositionally, you know, I come to find out that with the exception of a few, these are all songs he'd written that just blew my mind. And so in many ways, I mean, it's, I look at my life now, unfortunately he passed away about 12 or 13 years ago and I never got to know him really. Um, I saw him play as often as I could. And since I've become really good friends and I work with old friends of his a lot, but I never got to know him and um, certainly never got to let him know what an impact it made on me. But I look at what I've become and in a lot of ways I've become my version of what I saw that night as I look retrospectively, because all the things that I love and all the things that I have my hands in are in a way kind of, it's, you know, that night he inspired a trajectory of what to sort of where the bar should be, you know, and I'm not saying that I've met that, but it's like, I've constantly been, been reaching for it ever since. And so that, that's probably the, the big, the biggest single performance concert that I've ever experienced you know and i don't think anything else comes close to that <laughs> yeah it'd be pretty hard now to come close to that jeez yeah yeah and um for any of the listeners that haven't caught one of your shows performance wise what can they expect um well they they can expect to you know they can expect me to sort of try and hit all these different things that i like so there's going to be, uh, there's, there's going to be, you know, a, you know, Afrobeat music, there's going to be traditional blues, uh, you know, not necessarily blues rock, but like, there's going to be like a lightning Hopkins or, a, you know, not necessarily one of their songs, but something in that sort of vein, there's going to be probably a bluegrass song that I play either on acoustic or mandolin or something. There's going to be, slide guitar in multiple different types of applications there's going to be some jazz whether it's somewhat traditional or like completely sort of bitches brew miles or um on the corner sort of early 70s psychedelic free jazz if you will ornette coleman inspired there's going to be uh some sort of new orleansy kind of stuff uh, i love the meters a lot so there's going to be you know, probably an instrumental or something sort of in that vein, there's going to be, um, uh, you know, it, it, and on and on, you know, it's, it's just, I, I like to try and I ha I like a lot of varied things and I like to sort of do, do them all, you know, uh, to the best of my ability. Um, so it's a very relaxed atmosphere in my shows and there there's, there's a lot of, of, uh, true uh improvisation where there's absolutely nothing planned and things just sort of happen in a jazz context if you will and um it's always a lot of fun i mean it's incredibly fun for me and my my friends that are playing with me obviously but yeah it's going to be a lot it's you know essentially all lots of different types of 
roots music, I suppose, you know. That sounds absolutely amazing. I was sitting there thinking, I was like, you know what? You actually, I don't think you could get bored. You, you'd be kind of an, anticipating what's coming next, you know, and just pure <laughs> enjoyment. And um, pre-COVID, you were doing 200 plus shows a year. Have you yeah. reached that level again? Is it hard to get back to it? I don't want to get back to it. Um, <laughs> right. I I don't I don't think it was I don't think it was healthy and I don't think that it was necessary and it took covid to show me that uh for for all intents and purposes I mean I am much happier and peaceful now um going out and doing weeks at a time and then coming back and like I said working playing on other people's records and in some cases producing other people's records and stuff. And the balance of sort of both things that I love. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't ever see myself doing that ever again. Um, I'm glad that I did it because you learn a lot through the process of it. Um, it certainly helps. Ref- it should help refine what it is that you do. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, much more of a hundred ish show a year kind of guy, uh, uh, the, the, you know, at this point in my life. Yeah. Yeah. In the past, you've collaborated with the likes of Jack White, Tommy Emmanuel, Dave Cobb, as you mentioned, and you were part of the Grateful Dead founder, Phil Lesh's Phil and Friends. When you're playing and collaborating with guys like that, what do you learn? Oh man, I could talk to you for hours about that. I mean, it, it, it's everyone is different. I mean, first of all, there's never a time that you're doing something musical that you don't learn something mm. or that you can't learn something. I should put it that way. Cause it all has to do with your personality. Um, but every time you play with other people, you can learn something. Um, so, I mean, all of them have different, you know, like just quickly. I mean, it's like, uh, like working with Jack, for example, I was very fascinated because I, I wanted to see what his process was like, what, how does he make records? Mm. And so I was very take, I was very taken with, um, the fact that we were working completely analog, um, to tape and, and it was very chaotic because we were all, cr- we, we were working at his house studio. We weren't work- working at third man. We were working at his home. Um, because we were working on the Beyonce record. And so they wanted more control over nobody knowing what we were working on. So like we were at his house so that there wouldn't be random people seeing what we were working on. And I assume, I assume. And um, so it was interesting because it was like, okay, we worked, we would cut, we would cut the track to, to tape with lots of sort of lo-fi sounds and things bleeding into everything and, and kind of a messy kind of a sound. And then when we got something he liked, it would then go into did into the digital realm to then sort of be um, enhanced in, in like a hip hop fashion. So then all of a sudden the low end, like there would, he would be able to add low end, artificial low end to this lo-fi sound and it was this interesting sort of 
it was just really interesting to see how he was he was like both working like the thing that he that he flies his flag for of like to 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 work to tape and to live and die by um by a performance and so on and so forth but then use modern technology in a very hip hop fashion to 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 give it a singular identity that doesn't necessarily make it sound retro okay and that was that and many other things but like that was something that i thought was really interesting um work just watching how he how he sonically would would work uh working to fill is i mean it's the the purest like you can if your intent is correct you can do no wrong kind of musical scenario um it's a very I never was the biggest Grateful Dead fan prior to working with Phil and working with Phil and getting deep in the, in the catalog and then performing that stuff made me love them because I understood it in a way that I just was missing as a music fan for all the years prior. Um, I was in a way I was being too analytical um it's a joyful the, the the dead's music at its core is joyful it's 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 just it's pure bliss mm. um and i was missing that i was almost taking it too seriously i think as a music fan where you just lay back and let it happen let it happen let you let yourself just surrender to it and it's just a beautiful ethos um yeah, I don't, you know, Tommy, you know, Tommy Emanuel was, is uh, one of the, I mean, he literally will, it was actually uncomfortable for me because he, he will, he will take his guitar out at the, at the gate at the airport and be sitting there playing. <laughs> it's kind of uncomfortable. Like, dude, put the thing away, man. Like you're, 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 you're a psycho, you know? Um, but like the reason he is as good as he is, is because there's literally never a moment that he's not playing. Mm. Like, it's just it's i've never seen anything remote i've seen people that are diligent in their in their pursuit of trying to be great um but i've never seen anyone that even remotely compares to the amount of of moment to moment just laser beam focus on trying to be just what he is which is kind of top of the mountain as far as musicianship is concerned uh yeah i don't you know dave uh dave is uh uh, Dave has had a huge impact on my life and my family. Um, uh, he's a friend. Um, he's a, he's a fellow nerd, if you will. Um, and he's, his strong suit is, um, he, he casts records so brilliantly. He picks the right people to do whatever it is that is supposed to be done. And then he lets them do their thing. He doesn't get, um, he doesn't, he doesn't wield. Some producers will wield power because they sort of feel the need to, whether it's ego wise or whatever. And it's like Dave is a very, Dave doesn't get in the way of the music happening, which is why he's so prolifically successful, I think, is because he, he knows. He knows when he needs to gently nudge the ship in a different direction. He know he knows how to sort of help 
help bring a, an arrangement or something together. He has those skills. Um, but he also knows how to just let it happen. Yeah. Like, and w- without, without, without spooking the horse, you know? And, um, and it's a pleasure to work with him, you know, anytime, anytime he calls, it's, it's a joy. You know, from gigs that you've played, is there one that stands out as, you know, like the pinnacle, say the best experience you've had that you revisit over and over? Not any singular one. There's a lot of them. Um, I mean, well, you know, here, I'll pick one because it just happened and it was just, and it was special for multiple reasons. So we have the Ryman Auditorium here in Nashville, which is one of the most historic venues in the world. And um, I've been very fortunate to get to play there many times. And this last time we played, we were on, we were on tour with, uh, well, I say we, it was every year, the Allman brothers sort of family, the, all of the, the, um, spearheaded by David Allman, Greg's son, and Dwayne Betts, uh, Dickie's son. They do this tour, sort of celebrating the Allman Brothers music every every Christmas. And uh, it has a, a long long list of, of special guests. And um, I've been fortunate enough to, to be part of it for several years. Myself and my, my dear friend Luther Dickinson, who I played in Phil Lesh's band with. Um, and... Uh, uh, so this last uh, December, um, not only was I participating in the show, but I also opened several of the shows with my trio. And one of those was, was, uh, was at the Ryman. And um, I have a four-year-old daughter. So she's been backstage her whole life with me. But because of bedtimes and stuff like that, she's never actually seen daddy work, quote unquote. So, and this is also the first time that she ever went to the Ryman. So her and my wife came for, you know, sound check and, you know, she was dancing on stage and, and messing around, you know, at the Ryman auditorium. And then, uh, and then her and mommy stayed for, for daddy's set. And, um, you know, that was incredibly special for me as a father yeah um and um luther who was there luther's luther has two me and luther are very tight and uh um when he he has two daughters that are slightly older than mine and they were there as well with his wife and you know there's a whole collective of friends of mine that are all we're all becoming dads you know and so it was just very special because everybody was everybody understood, you know, the significance for me. And so like, you know, after, after the fact I had all of my, you know, Luther and everybody like sending me like videos that they'd filmed of like my daughter dancing in the wings or something. (laughs) And, and, um, it was just something, it was just a real special thing. And it's like for that to happen at the Ryman, um, and then coupled with the thing where it's like, I've the first time I ever did the Ryman, I was almost too nervous to enjoy it. The second time I was a little less nervous. I enjoyed it more. The third time I enjoyed at this point, it's like, I can literally just walk in there and not be overwhelmed by the environment at all. Yeah. I mean, the stage manager and the the people, they're all friends of mine and stuff now, you know, like 
it's a very comfortable environment and I can just enjoy it for what it is, which is this incredible venue, you know, mm. that sounds amazing and feels amazing to play and stuff. So anyway, um, I'll pick that one. <laughs> as a, as a father myself, I completely understand. And out of all the stories I've heard of gigs that stand out for musicians, that's actually the sweetest and nicest one I've, I've heard, you know, Oh, well, I'm glad. (laughs) I mean, it's just that thing where it's like, you know, there's lots of ones that like, for many different reasons, were incredible and Mm. stuff I'll never forget, you know, but it's like, that's, that's something that I, you know, I don't know, man, you know, that's the thing that really matters, you know. You may have when you're, you know, in your older years, when you think back of your gigs, that one will probably be top of the list that you'll remember first. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sure that, you know, as my daughter gets older, I mean, I'm sure she'll go to concerts there. I'm sure she'll probably be there with me more times, uh, Lord willing. And, and who knows if she, you know, if she ends up wanting to be a musician or something like that, she may end up playing there herself, you know, so I don't know. So, but the point being is like the, nothing's ever going to happen to the Ryan auditorium. It's, (laughs) it'll be there before it'll, it'll be there longer than I'm here. Certainly. So it's you know it's something that i know we'll all we'll all remember and she talks about it all the time still you know (laughs) yeah yeah you know and um before we move on to the last couple of questions then future plans would you like to tell us a bit about the upcoming tour sure um finally getting around to doing a, a proper duo tour with my buddy adam abershoff on drums we sort of um over the last couple of years, we've, it started with, <laughs> it's an interesting story. It's, I'll try and keep it brief, but it's the, uh, the very first show coming out of lockdown. There's a, a, a historic venue in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Kane's Ballroom, which uh, uh, has been around for over a hundred years. And it was the home club of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys once upon a time, incredibly historic room. And um, they had, inquired to have me come and play a solo performance there in i believe it was like november of 2020 so it was like limited capacity it was the very first show i was going to do it was one of their first shows they were going to do trying to do masked you know small capacity thing and I, in my infinite wisdom, went, well, yeah, I can go do it solo. But I was like, why don't I do a duo with Adam, you know, because we certainly can be a bubble and do it safely. And it's only just one other person. I won't bring anyone else with me and so on. And they said, okay, we can do that. And so, you know, then Adam and I had to figure out what we were going to do in a duo context because we'd never <laughs> done it before. Yeah, And, uh, and it worked really beautifully. It's actually a, a really fun thing to do because it's there's certain material that really translates really beautifully in a duo context, even more so than a trio or a quartet, even. Um, and 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 surely there's other material that doesn't work as well. But it's it's a very free, beautiful. Even the jazz stuff works really well in that context. Um, you know, certainly it's nothing new. You know, I mean, Bill Frizzell goes out and does duo stuff from time to time with Brian blade and other people. Um, but, um, in any rate, so we're, we're, we're doing a, like a month long of that. And then we're slowly starting to announce, uh, trio shows 
Um, the first couple have just gotten announced, but there's a bunch more coming. And then there's there's some festival shows like going back to Peach Fest that we that we that we did last year. And um, it, we may actually come back uh, to Europe uh, later in the year. We've we're certainly we're trying to, to figure it out, actually, because we've had some offers and uh, we just need to work out the details. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, basically stretching well to the end of the year and then you know, I'm I'm a little bit overwhelmed with uh coming coming back or going to New York or going to Los Angeles to to work on uh other people's records and things that I'm committed to as well so um yeah just a little bit of everything you know I'm delighted you said you were thinking of coming back to Europe as well actually I was going to ask that would you be coming back so it's great to hear that you're trying to work that out as well yeah, I, I think it's definitely going to happen. It might not be a, a big, I don't think we're going to be able to do a long thing, but I think definitely, because uh, I came over last year uh, a few times to do some strings of festivals throughout Europe and Scandinavia, and uh, and that was good fun last summer. Um, so I, I, it, what it's looking like is it's more likely to be something like that, where maybe I come over and just do a smattering of a handful of shows in different places and and then have to get back to back to the regular schedule program over here yeah yeah i get you i get you right we'll uh dive into the last couple of questions everybody gets these i'm afraid so you can't get off the podcast till you answer no it's fine if you could see any performer from history in concert for one night only who would it be that's a really good question there's so many i think I think if I if 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 I could go back and see Miles oh. right before right before Bitches Brew in the in a silent way era. Hmm. So like I'm talking probably late sixty-eight, early sixty-nine. But he's got Dave Holland on bass. And he's got Jack Dejanet on drums, and he's even got Chick Corea already playing keyboards. But it's it's just prior to making Bitches Brew. I think seeing him right in that little window, I think if I could pick one thing, I think that would probably be it. You know, and it would probably be they didn't play; they played mostly in Europe in that era. So probably what I know they did like weeks in London. So I think probably camping out in London and seeing a couple of those would be, would be what I would pick. There's many, many others, but I just, <laughs> the, the sort of, I don't know, man, like I just to feel what that would feel like in a, in a place that holds a hundred people would be pretty powerful. I think. Yeah. Yeah. But, definitely. I mean, honor, uh, but honorable mentions go to, uh, honorable mentions go to seeing junior Kimbrough at his juke joint in the early nineties in Chilohoma, Mississippi on a Saturday or Sunday would definitely be high on the list. Um, seeing, um, uh, man, seeing, seeing Coltrane at the Vanguard 
in New yeah. York City in the early 60s. Um, Elvis is a weird one because... Really? Well, because part of me would want to see him, but part of me enjoys the the myth of... Ah, yeah, I've never of, thought of that before, actually. But, like, you know, like, watching That's the Way It Is or Elvis on Tour or something like that, like, part of me likes the myth. But I guess, you know, honorable mention would definitely be probably seeing him in Las Vegas in either the first in 69, the, the initial when things were just raw and really, really high energy or that, you know, early, either the first residency or the August residency in 70 that yielded. That's the way it is obviously, but early on in Vegas, I think would definitely, but there's a lot, man. I mean, I would have loved, you know, to see Robbie Shankar, to see, um, to see the Allman brothers when Dwayne Allman was alive, to see, uh, um, uh, to see the clash, you know, in the early eighties, to see, to see Nirvana, um, yeah. uh, to see, uh, um, to see Funkadelic in their, you know, in their heyday or Isaac Hayes in the early seventies, you know, I the list goes on, man, <laughs> Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, I'll never pick, ends. but I'll stick, I'll stick with miles though. I'll stick with miles in the in a silent way era. Good one. Good one. Now, this next one is is interesting. If you had to spend 24 hours locked in a room with any musician from history, who would you pick? Interesting. Um, hmm. <laughs> I think it would be Miles. Nice. Uh, I think it would be Miles because I just feel like I would learn so much from him. Hmm. Um, and he was so interesting and he was so fucking crazy too. So it's like, <laughs> it ticks a lot of boxes. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, or, um, so Miles would be who I would pick who's dead. Mm. But I'd pick Rye Cooter for someone who's living. I've met Rye twice. And um, he's so fascinating. Again, he's such an eccentric, but he's so deep and so interesting and crazy. Um uh, yeah, I think that it would be, I think it would be incredible <laughs> <laughs> or terrible or both. Yeah, you never know. You never know. That's the thing. You want someone um, who has that little bit of craziness to keep it exciting because it would be a very long 24 hours, if not. Yeah, very <laughs> much. <laughs> and the final one, what song would appear on the soundtrack to your life? What song? Mm. Um. Uh, well, several immediately come to mind, but um, probably "God Only Knows" by the Beach Boys. Nice, nice. Because it's just you know, it's a melody that I close my eyes and want to hear. You know, 
Um, so yeah, I'll 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 stick with that. Good one, good <laughs> one, JD. Listen, I can't describe how much I've enjoyed chatting to you. Now it's been an absolute <laughs> blast. Thanks a million for coming Thank you. on. Thank you very, very much for having me. I had a wonderful time, too.
Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. And if you're interested in signing up the Band Builder Academy, use the link in the show notes below and enter the code CONCERTS and you'll receive 10% off. So, until next time, keep rocking. Hey, hey, what are you guys still doing there? The show is over. It's over. You can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. Bye.